The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that results from listening to this podcast. This is the Scream Kings podcast. I'm Max George. And I'm Nathaniel Darkish. Could that really be just one person? No, it's the Mormon Tabernacle Choir making their annual obscene podcast. Oh, if only, if only. Man, I would pay good money to see that. I would also pay a lot of good money for that. But Mormonism aside, happy holidays, everybody. Yes, happy holidays. This episode's probably going to be released in 2021. But of course, the holidays are always so chaotic. You have a newborn. It's, it's been a wild month, Nathaniel. Good lord. Yes, it definitely has. And, and yeah, this is definitely going to be coming out probably the first week of 2021. But that's okay. That's why it's the holiday season. I'll just try to make sure it comes out before Three Kings Day. Then we'll be good. Yeah, perfect. Exactly. And we'll get some of that fun Three Kings cake. I saw it in Walmart today. I can't even remember what it's called. But also, we've set a precedent for uh, uh, us posting our Christmas episodes late anyways with our very first Christmas episode a couple years ago with our Krampus Comes Late thing that we did. So, you know, we're just uh, following tradition. Uh, and then we opened the door to so many new kinks and fetishes out there for Krampus. Yes, we did. What a good Christmas. <laughs> Let's talk about a black Christmas, perhaps. See yes. what I did there? I, I, I liked that transition. <laughs> and of course, uh, we are talking about the 1974 Black Christmas, original directed by Bob Clark. We're, we're not talking about either of the remakes. Maybe briefly touch on our impressions of those. But uh, for the most part, yeah, we're just going to be focusing in on the original Black Christmas. <laughs> Some of the girls are over here today, but I haven't seen Claire. Well, what the hell are you planning to do about it? Ninety percent of the time, girls are reported missing from the college. They're at a cabin somewhere with a boyfriend. A high school girl's been murdered. Claude. 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 I guess that's our short first major point is a very important movie to the slasher genre probably more important or yeah probably one of the most important slasher movies ever made yeah it, so i saw black christmas a few months ago it was really good i really enjoyed it um i noticed that they made another remake in 2019 but at the time i probably was a little inebriated when i watched all of it so getting to rewatch it especially dur- during the christmas season this movie is not only really fantastic, it holds up really well, but like you say, Nathaniel, it really set the precedent for a lot of future slasher films. And we'll see that kind of as we pick apart the movie and talk about why and what makes it so good. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's it's just really interesting because, you know, not is it, you know, influential, it's it's just one of the first slasher movies ever made. People tend to hold this up as like the, the first major slasher followed very quickly by Halloween. And so it's kind of interesting to see how much 
other slashers pull from this, and also the things that they don't pull from it. Things that I, I feel like this movie does very well that a lot of slashers that come later don't necessarily do as well. One of the first things is just that it's it's a very intelligent movie. Like the characters are actually pretty proficient. Um, you know, it's not just a bunch of like drunken idiot teenagers just getting killed left and right. Like most people don't really have much of a chance, even if they are on their guard and you know armed and things like that. Like it's I don't know. It it, it was kind of refreshing to see a slasher where the idiocy of characters wasn't the you know, only reason that they're just getting killed left and right. Yeah, that is a huge, huge point that I wanted to talk about as well. Overall, this movie has very real characters. A lot of the sorority girls, we, you know, you went to college with them, or you know someone in the neighborhood, or you grew up with someone who's like them. You know, you have kind of the prudish, very straight-laced girl. You kind of have the sexual deviant, the mother of the group. All of these girls are very real in their execution. And they don't get in trouble because they make stupid choices. They don't make the smartest of choices, of course, or it wouldn't be a movie. The movie is cemented in a sense of reality that you just don't see in slashers. I think we've talked about this before in other episodes, Nathaniel, of I don't love slashers because the villain always tends to be this godlike being that can do no wrong and is immortal, and no matter how many times you shoot him, he keeps coming back. And I think Black Christmas didn't do that and it's very refreshing especially in our day and age where every slasher movie is almost a replica of the other one i i definitely agree i i also am not the biggest slasher fan generally speaking because of a lot of the same things i i feel like a lot of times and, and to me i don't think necessarily the problem is as much that the villain is this monolith of of it you know that that's indestructible that doesn't always necessarily lend itself to good storytelling to to have a, a villain that strong. But a lot of times I feel like the, the big weakness in a lot of slashers is just that the main characters are just kind of crappy. Like, most most of the time we have very throwaway characters in slasher movies. And, and the ones that I tend to like the best are ones like Scream or Nightmare on Elm Street, where we have a protagonist who's actually worthwhile. You know, Sydney and Nancy and, and you know, these, these characters that are actually, like, interesting, compelling characters that you want to cheer for. But it, when we, we have things like Friday the 13th, all of those characters are just throwaway characters. Like, I don't care about any of them, so I don't have any emotional stakes when they die. And so, to me, yeah, this movie worked because even though I didn't necessarily like all of the characters, I could at least appreciate them as human beings. They felt real and fleshed out to me. I mean, because, you know, like, yeah, Barb is like an idiot, but I also like that Barb didn't get killed just because she's an idiot. Like, she was killed because she was asleep. You know, it, it, it's, it's not just the same old stupid shenanigans that you see in so many other slashers. We're going to talk a little bit about how there was a little bit too much comedic relief at certain points mm-hmm. but even those kind of comedy characters they they didn't impact the plot substantially sometimes i feel like the comedic relief kind of forces the main group of characters to direct one way or the other uh, and while it was a little nauseating some of the comedic relief moments overall the characters didn't weigh down the plot at all yeah it was a little obnoxious but they ended up dying <coughs> 
relatively quickly and we didn't have to worry about it as much. And, and like you were saying, they didn't pull away from the realism of the other characters. A lot of the annoying uh, joke characters really were there to, you know, for us to laugh at, but also kind of go like, oh yeah, we've met someone like that before. Like, even they weren't too far out of the realm of reality. You know, they, they felt like they, they would fit in a world like, you know, especially characters like, uh, I don't know, Mrs. Mac. She, she's definitely, you know, one where it's like, yeah, we've all, you know, like, like yeah, she's, she's kind of a stereotype, but the stereotype does exist for a reason. There are actual, actual people that are really that way, you know, that are that much of a lush. So another thing that I thought was really good was just the villain, though. I mean, we talked about that he's not just this juggernaut, but I, I like that we don't know that much about him, but what we do get is very unsettling. Well, and, and we don't even get that much. Um, so to kind of set the stage, uh, we have this group of sorority girls who are celebrating the Christmas holiday. Everyone's starting to go home for the family, go home to the family, excuse me. And they start getting these calls, which they've dubbed the Moaner. That's this guy who just makes all sorts of grotesque noises, vulgarities are said, grunts, moans, just these really creepy sounds. And, and then as it goes on, it starts to also introduce like other character voices that he starts doing as well. Yeah, yeah, I was just getting about to say that it kind of spirals into this madness of every time he calls, it gets a little bit different and a little bit worse. You start to wonder, uh, does he have different identities? The girls, I think, are worried that he has other people trapped. It just kind of spirals out of control. Um, and really, that's all we know about the killer, other than he lives up in the attic, and he takes the corpses of his victims and kind of fetishizes them a little bit. We see the first kill is in a rocking chair looking out the window, and then Mrs. Mack eventually dies as well, and she's kind of hanging in the background. He kind of uses them almost as trophies. Um, and that's it. That is all we know, really. The one that, scene in particular, Nathaniel. Oh, go ahead. Oh, just that, and his name is probably Billy, but that's just, you know, from some of the, <laughs> you know, conversations he's having with himself over the phone, too, where it's rebuking this, this boy named Billy. But again, we don't even definitively know that that's his name. There's this one scene in particular towards the end where the only glimpse of, you know, quote unquote, Billy that we see is this, like, villainous eye coming through the crack of a door it's kind of the the golden moment of the movie where we finally see the villain the murderer and all we get is his eye and that imagery and that cinematography that we see in black christmas is haunting i i can't believe it's not more iconic and if it is i think it's kind of been drowned in you know the white noise of other slasher movies because this, that scene to me was just golden cinema yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely know, like, I, I had seen the image before watching the film, but yeah, I don't think that it has been given the same level of impact as, as a lot of other, like, iconic moments in other movies. I think that's a shame, because yeah, it was quite the moment. I really, really liked that part of the movie where, you know, we finally have Jess, our, our protagonist, you know, finally come face to face with this horrifying man. And I, I, I guess I was a little disappointed as well, just because I wanted me and my kind of a cold psychological brain wanted more of Billy. I wanted to know why he was doing this to some regard. But at the same time, it's perfect that they didn't tell us. It makes him that much scary. It's a powerful 
a power play to some regard to have this crazy villain and then at the end of the movie you think you're going to kind of have that tension relief and you don't you don't know who this guy is you don't know what his motives are and it leaves you with that lingering horror feeling that we have talked about so often of a trait of a well-made horror movie that after the movie's done you're still thinking about it and still kind of looking over your back and looking through the walls to make sure you don't have any eyeballs staring back at you. Yeah, I love that it doesn't wrap up anything in a neat bow in this movie. Like, not only do we not learn exactly who this Billy guy is, what his motivations are, why why did he choose this place, why is he hiding in this house, uh, and also some of the other big questions. Is he also the person that's been killing all of these other people in the area? You know, we have a little girl that gets murdered partway through the movie that you know, results in this like big uh, group of people looking all over the, uh, the local park and things like that. You know, all of these things are, are pieces that are there that we never get answers to. We don't know if he's killing these other people. We don't know why he's here. We don't know how old he is even. You know, we, there's, there's so much that we still don't know. And, and on top of all of that, we also don't have the story tied up nicely because... He is still at large at the end. The police think that the killer was Jess's boyfriend. It was not. Who has been killed by Jess. She killed him in a panic, thinking it was him. Jess is unconscious. Yeah, then we have Billy just, you know, talking to himself in the attic, undiscovered, with two bodies that people still haven't found either. So it's not a a happy neat bow by any means you know for all we know the next thing is that he kills everyone else in the house like i don't know i I like that because a lot of times we don't have answers to you know these these big kinds of questions about these these scary people who do bad things you know it's not always that we can say oh well they have this specific uh mental illness or that you know this specific delusion or they were treated poorly as a child, or this or that. Like, we don't always have those kinds of explanations in real life. And to me, it's it's just so much more interesting to not have those answers and just have this lingering mystery, you know, not only about what has happened up until this point, but what will happen next. And another thing about Black Christmas, I think, that is so profound, this movie was made in 1974, and the amount of liberalism, I, that's not the right word, uh, it's very progressive, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. The themes that were discussed in the movie, I was shocked um, that a movie of, made in 1974 was delivering this caliber of hot topics. For me in particular, with it being a sorority house, you know, nowadays you see sorority house and it's very disgusting in terms of feminism. Um, <laughs> but this movie in particular, it treated these women as independent smart acting women and that was incredibly refreshing to see and surprising for the time period yeah at the same yeah time, i mean like, really the only character that was kind of uh, of of the of the girls in the house was was barb who like yeah like she's just there to just like party but you know even then like she isn't totally you know like a worthless character by any means yeah she was she liked sex but that that wasn't used as the plot point of the entire movie, you know? She still was an individual. The other thing, though, that I I noticed with its feminism of Black Christmas was that it was not forced. It didn't make the feminism a a plot point. It didn't force it into the viewer's eyes. It just kind of 
left it there to be digested. And that is how it should be done, in my opinion. You know, my, yeah. my gay, white, male perspective. Um, I, I do consider myself a feminist, but the way it executed it was almost breathless. It didn't try. And that, to me, is kind of the true power of feminism, where you don't have to kind of roll your eyes and be like, oh, they're trying to say something. You know, the amulet that came out earlier this year was the exact opposite. And I know, Nathaniel, you haven't seen that, but by the end of the movie, you were gagging on this feminism subplot that they were trying to force on you. And if you didn't agree with what they were trying to say, you felt bad because it, you were like, well, but I'm a feminist, but I don't like how they treated it. You know, it was this weird kind of mental dichotomy. Uh, and so Black Christmas really was inspiring for me to see that at the time that it was made. A lot of feminist pieces nowadays can learn from Black Christmas, in my mind. Yeah, I, I definitely agree as well. I, I felt like it had a very yeah, like natural dialogue with the audience of like, hey, like these are strong, capable women, but it's not that they have to... That that doesn't have to be at the at the price of something else, you know. So often when we have you know these standout movies, you know that are pieces that pe- people point to and say that is a feminist piece. A lot of times, you know, it's because oh yeah, there's like this total kick ass woman in it, and it's not to say that a woman can't kick ass, but but rather you know like to me, what makes it a good feminist piece is that everyone has has the same level of opportunity to be competent or incompetent one of my favorite movies of all time of course is alien as, as we have talked about at length and yeah to me like that one's also a really great feminist piece because you know again we have ripley being very competent but then we also have a, a, a female character who is less competent and that's fine too like they're both women who are doing a job and and they're put into a circumstance that is totally beyond anything that they ever dream of and so yeah this kind of piece you know, like with Black Christmas, is is very, I don't know, it's just very positive to see because, yeah, these these women felt like people. People who have as much opportunity to be uh, successful or not successful as anyone else. So yeah, I, I really like this piece for that. And I would, and I'm sure you would, so the Scream Kings would love to hear from females and women in the community. What do you think of Black Christmas and the messages that it was kind of talking about? Do you agree with it? Do you believe it's a strong feminist beast? Like, please tell us. I mean, because we are both two white men who have not had to struggle with things that you have struggled with. Yeah, and and uh, what one uh, piece I, I would definitely, a podcast I would actually point our listeners to that maybe could tackle this in a more... Uh, direct, you know, it, it is a podcast by women that is a feminist horror podcast, would be Faculty of Horror. Uh, in one of their early episodes, they covered Black Christmas, as well as Halloween in the same episode, if I remember right. Very good episode, and and yeah, they, they were bringing up a lot of these similar kinds of points. Um, so yeah, I would definitely recommend anyone who wants to kind of hear a more directly feminist take on all of this to check out that episode, because it's definitely worth your time. And I, I do want to also point out, I know you didn't love Barb, um, but again, I felt like this movie was progressive in that she was a sexually active female. She wasn't this dainty, prudish, you know, saving myself for my husband type of a character. Mm-hmm. Well, it might be a little uncomfortable, and she was, you know, probably more vulgar than you would like to hear. It didn't bother me. 
I really appreciated that again in 1974 it was showing that women are sexual creatures they have just the same amount of vulgar thoughts probably that men do like it just it was normalizing the dialogue of sexuality and well again and, it was brilliant to me well and and what I really like is that it's not just Barb who is you know talking about having a sex life and things like that. You know, we also have it with Jess. We also probably have at least a couple of references with uh, Phil. We have, you know, all of these women are young, very, you know, liberated women who are doing what they want to do. And that's totally fine. Uh, you know, in fact, yeah, with Jess, uh, we, we have her, you know, we definitely know that she has been sexually active because she is uh, playing on uh, having an abortion. You know, and, and it doesn't necessarily make any judgment calls about any of these characters either way. They're just people, and, and you know, their, their value doesn't have anything to do with whether or not they are virgins, which is refreshing. <laughs> well, and that leads us into kind of the abortion dialogue as well. I, I felt like this movie was also pretty pro-choice in its execution. I, you made a note, though, that it doesn't really force a statement either way. The main character, there's some drama between her and her fiancé, boyfriend, I can't quite recall. Boyfriend. So, boyfriend. so Peter. Peter, yeah. And, and he wants kind of the nuclear family. He wants her to get married. She's pregnant. He wants her to keep the baby. And she very, I think, maturely stands up for herself and says, no, you know, these are your dreams, and you're asking me to surrender my dreams, and that's not fair. Just because I'm a woman doesn't mean I'm going to just abandon everything that I've worked for. And the abortion was a part of that you know, discussion and dialogue, and I was really moved by it. Oddly enough, that, again, in 1974, movies were having this level of a discussion in their plot. Yeah, and, and what I liked also is that, you know, like you said, it didn't really force a, a strong statement either way. It showed you that Jess was, you know, okay with it, and that Peter was not, and it was a, a point of contention between them. But it didn't necessarily come out and say one of them is right and one of them is wrong. It didn't preach at you. It showed you a situation and let you come to your own conclusions. And I think that's the way to have a good dialogue about these kinds of things is by showing us things realistically, not just preaching uh, some morality, whether it be, you know, a right-wing perspective or a left-wing perspective on something. Just show us it and let us come to our own conclusions based on what, you, what we see. It's, it's interesting to see that, yeah, everyone is, like, every, yeah, every single character does some things that are a little bit morally ambiguous. Like, yeah, Barb is, is kind of a drunken idiot and a jerk, but she also does actually, like, go out and try to, like, look for her friend and things like that. You know, every single character has value. They, sh you know, we see them doing good things, but we also see them do some stupid things or some things that we might morally disagree with. And I like that every single character has that. Or at least every major character, I should say. So moving outside of kind of the progressive nature of the movie, we've talked a little bit about Billy's phone calls to the girls, but also the killings in their design are very creepy as well, especially what he does after the fact taking these corpses and almost worshipping them in some regard or incorporating them into his, his weird fantasy that he has, it really kind of starts punching right away. It's one of those things that the pacing really works. Um, it pulls you right in and doesn't let you really go. You're always kind of waiting for Billy's next phone call or the next kill. 
And again, that was done so well in this slasher film that other slashers should probably pick up on. So many slashers will start off with a, a stinger, you know, like with a, with a strong hook, uh, some cold open of someone getting pursued and killed. And then there's nothing for like 45 minutes. And then we have kills again. This one, I want to say the, the first kill that we saw was, I don't know, like 20 minutes in. And it just kept going, and and you know, but before even that first kill, we had the free, the yeah the freaky calls, and we had other things that were really kind of pulling us in, other than just the things that so many other slashers rely on, just like you know titillation. It, it was much more compelling and and related to the plot right off the bat. Um, another thing that I really liked, and you made this note, is that the movie not only kind of hones in on the murders themselves, but it takes advantage of the holiday itself. The cold, the dark, everyone's kind of coming and going for the holidays. There's a lot of uncertainty behind a lot of the motives of the characters, and not uncertainty of they're suspicious or they're acting strange. Uncertainty in that we don't really know what they're doing for the holidays. Are they coming? Are they going? Are they staying? One of the first girls who was killed, her dad comes and really kind of throws a kink into the sorority kind of mechanics it was really cool to kind of feel that level of horror that the holidays are so stressful and so uncertain for a lot of people let's throw in a serial killer and kind of jazz it up a little bit yeah and also you know it, it again had had some significant plot elements that would have them leaving the house and then having to come back to the house it would have you know reasons for characters to be where they were uh, a really great example, I think, is the fact that we don't have our police detective character staying in the house with them because he needs to be there to help process all of the uh, tracing of the phone calls. You know, he has to be at his office to do that. And so he isn't right there when a lot of the action is happening. And so, yeah, he has to get there. So that it definitely makes the tension higher in a, in a way that actually worked for the plot. It made sense. It wasn't that he was, you know, sitting around just, you know, protecting them himself. He, you know, he sent another cop outside and then he went to his office to do work to try to help solve the problem. So another, another big question you have here, Nathaniel, is, I think we've hit on it a little bit, but is why is Black Christmas not as well known? as, say, you know, Nightmare on 13th Street, or Halloween, or some of the big hitter slashers. Scream, Night- even. Nightmare um, on 13th Nightmare Street on- is a... Is a ah! It's because I hate it so much. Nightmare ah! on Elm Street. Damn it. Well, Friday the 13th. Good lord. I give up. I'm going. Goodbye, everybody. It was nice. Have a, have a great New Year's. <laughs> and for me, looking back, I, I kind of made two points. And the first one, I don't really agree with as much as my second point first thing i was thinking about is you know the sexism thing that this movie is about a sorority it's about a group of girls maybe that there was this like some sort of sexist ploy to make it not as popular as others and and that might have some like power behind it i i I don't think so i i think i i talk i made another point where i said Billy, we don't see a full face of Billy. We see his eyeball. Compare that to Jason, to Michael Myers, to Freddy Krueger. Those characters are iconic, and you can franchise that a lot better than you can a glimpse of a small eyeball. That I think that's that's really the big thing here. The, the point about it, you know, being a a female-led 
cast really doesn't, I, I think, track as well because so many of these other ones are very female-centric. You know, Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, Scream. You know, a lot of these other ones, our main character is the final girl. That's that's where the final girl trope comes from. True. But But, yeah, to me, yeah, I think it really boils down to how can we make this iconic? How franchisable is this? To me... I, I, I honestly think it's kind of a shame that it doesn't have the same level of, of staying power or you know cultural pervasiveness as a lot of these other ones because like straight up, Black Christmas is a way better movie than Halloween in my opinion. I think Halloween is very boring for very like for like eighty percent of it. I don't really care for it. And Halloween really just did a lot of the same stuff that Black Christmas did, I would say less well like a year later. And so I don't know. To me, it's just one of those. Yeah, at the end of the day, we don't have the iconic look for an iconic killer. That's the only thing I think that keeps this from having the real lasting power that those others have. But I mean, it's still an important movie. It's been remade twice. Yeah, and both of which I have very little desire to watch. I I heard the 2006 version is a lot better than the 2009. Um, (laughs) 2019. I need to go take a lap. I mean, I, I've heard that the 2006 one is cuckoo bananas, like, in a really, like, kind of fun way, but kind of stupid. It, it's a movie you watch to watch it, just bonkers kills and just to laugh and throw popcorn at the screen kind of thing. 2019 one, I just heard was really overly woke and trying to show us how woke it is instead of actually, like, doing anything interesting. Yeah, I've heard the exact same thing. And I, I mean, I could be wrong. I, I haven't seen them, but it's just I, I don't really desire to seek them out. So should we talk about some things that are less worthwhile about this one? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the first one we kind of briefly mentioned when we were talking about some of the great things about Black Christmas. Um, but that is there, Mrs. Mack. There's some this comic relief that is a little bit pervasive through the first two thirds of the movie, I think. There's the desk sergeant. There's the dumb search party guys yeah. who... That there's like Miss Mac looking for her sherry everywhere in the house, which it's fine. It's funny. It's just overdone. I I don't think it added anything to the movie. I don't think it took away from anything in the movie. It was a little obnoxious. I I personally did not like the obnoxious like search party guys. That felt very disjointed from the rest of the movie for me. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I was apathetic. I, I, it was. It was there. It happened. <laughs> yeah, like, to me, I think if, if we had maybe half as much Mrs. Mack, uh, and then just, you know, the desk sergeant, especially the, the joke with him not knowing what fellatio is, that was yeah, pretty how funny. How do you not know? How, how do you not know? It was one of those things that was just so far out, out there, it was kind of hard. Yeah, that's fair. It, like... There were there were some moments that I think you know could could use a little bit of lightness, but yeah, I, th- I think the the problem was that there was a yeah a few too many comic relief moments, and also where they were placed didn't necessarily deliberately release tension. You know, I I, I think comic relief is a is a very useful tool in horror, and that you can re- choose where you want tension you know, in your audience. And to me, it felt kind of random in this one. But yeah, again, it wasn't like a, the worst comic relief I've ever seen. It was just, eh. Another thing is just that I, I feel like this movie 
and and this isn't necessarily the movie's fault, but it just it there's there's a lot of components in it that don't necessarily inherently play very well with a lot of modern audiences. And and some of that is just because this is a very, you know, important movie that other filmmakers have stolen ideas from. And also, like, it just, yeah, uses some things that feel very worn out to us, you know, today. Like, the, oh, the call is coming from inside the house. Like, I'm sure when that moment happened in 1974, when audience were, audiences were first seeing that, people went, oh, what? But to us, <laughs> like, that's, uh, it, it's, it's become a bad joke over yeah, and over I, and over again. Yeah, exactly. I, I think this movie set the precedent for a lot of future slasher movies that we are so used to. You know, the the call is coming from inside the house and the creepy breathing on the phone felt very scream. And so like you were saying, it it started everything. But in a modern audience watching Black Christmas, I, I would not be surprised if people were saying like, oh, this ripped off X, Y, or Z. And that's just not true. Um, but the tropes have become so overused. It, it does kind of get tedious a little bit you know you know what's coming you know the call is coming from inside the house because it always comes from inside the house yeah plus i mean you know we we already were pretty sure that it was the maniac who was hiding inside the house already that was killing everybody so it it, it kind of already made sense like that wasn't that big of a shock regardless and and the other thing i had down is is something that didn't necessarily work very well for me was it briefly tried to sell us on the idea that uh, the boyfriend yeah. Peter was the killer. But it also showed us him too often to for us to actually believe that idea. So it it, it, it almost like tried to sell us that as a twist as like an afterthought. Or you know, try to show us a few things that would make us think that. But at the end of the day, like we also saw him like practicing and performing and things like that, and and none of those things really worked well to sell us on that idea. So it just kind of felt like a pointless subplot at the end of the day. Unfortunately, if if they had cut back and not showed us him practicing and had not showed us him, you know, performing uh, for his professors and all of that, and instead just kept the scene where you know he has learned about. Uh, the, the pregnancy and abortion and is uh, smashing the piano, oh, then we would probably buy it. Yeah, and that, that scene itself, smashing the piano, was fantastic. Yeah, and also if that had happened earlier. And I agree with you. I felt like Peter's portrayal was very contrived. I was watching it with someone, and the entire time we were thinking, oh, it's definitely not him because of how hard they were trying, you know? It got to the point where it was just utterly unbelievable. You knew it was a, a scapegoat. Yes. Right off the bat. Right off the bat. Yeah, I mean, but really, that's, that's all the bad I have to say about it. Like, as a whole, it really was a pretty solid movie, start to finish. And it was only, let's see, yeah. like 98 minutes long. It was pretty tight. Like, maybe if they trimmed back a few minutes, then it would be slightly tighter, but... I was pretty happy with it. I, I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. You and I were talking before we started recording. It's the kind of movie that it does what it does, it does a good job at it, and it kind of just leaves you feeling satisfied. Does a good job at some things, does a bad job at some things. It's very palatable. Mm -hmm. And that's it. There's no, uh, I don't know, staying power. 
to some regard about it, and that's not a bad thing. It was a very well done movie. And that's yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, uh, so should we throw out some ratings? As far as screams go, I originally rated it as a four. I'm going to bump it up to a five just because, as we've been talking, I've been thinking about that damn eye scene. Um, and then also his first kill, her like rocking in the rocking chair looking out the window. Um, both of those moments really kind of got to me a little bit. So I gave it a five. It's not overtly terrifying by any means, but it does have those moments that are classic horror scenes. Yeah, I gave it a four. Um, I Maybe it was just because I watched most of the movie on my phone that, that some of the scenes <laughs> didn't maybe rock me to my core as much as I wanted it to. But yeah, like there were some really great scares in it, but as a whole... I was just more interested to see how things played out as rather than actually being scared. Crowns-wise, I would give this movie a seven and a half. It was pretty solid, but at the end of the day, it does suffer just from being a slasher. Like I just, I'm just not that big on slashers, guys. Yeah, I I gave it a seven um, for the exact same reasons. It was fine. It's a good movie. It's progressive. Like I was saying, it, it does what it needed to do, or did what it needed to do, mm. but I wasn't, I don't need to watch it year after year, like a Hereditary or Midsummer or any of the other ones. It, it was fine. It's a seven. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, like, I would revisit it, but, like, yeah, I'm not going to seek it out all the time. So, let's see, next up, are you, you I guess, wanted to know theories on Billy? Yeah, I was just a little curious. The I was doing a little research on the internets, and there's no real solid conclusion about who or what Billy was. The only really like concrete thing I could find was in the 2006 remake. Billy was patterned off of Ed Pemper, famously known as the co-ed killer. Um, he was locked in his mother's basement for a while and kind of went on a crazy serial killer rampage. If you want to watch a really good show with a really amazing reenactment of Ed Kemper, uh, check out Mindhunter on Netflix. And then the 2019 remake turned Billy into a group of misogynistic fraternity boys. Um, like you said, it was very woke to use the lingo of the youth. I, I, I don't know, and I don't think we really need to dive into it. Other than maybe he was just someone in the neighborhood, a vagrant who maybe took residence in the sorority house without them knowing. Uh, I, I don't think he lived there the entire time. Yeah, I, I, I felt like he definitely came in, you know, pretty early, or, you know, probably just, just a little bit before, just, you know, when they started getting the calls is when he started hanging out there. You know, I, yeah, I didn't see other indications that he had been living there for a while. And I've heard that the 2006 ones, you know, like, make makes it look like he has been living there secretly for years or whatever. So it's, it is what it is. I don't know. He's just some maniac who showed up and just decided, like, you know, his, his, whatever delusions he was facing, that's uh, what made him kill. And I don't know. Like, yeah, I like, I liked that. I didn't have answers. I, I don't necessarily want clear answers because it's, it's scarier to not know. Um, you mentioned that you had a fun fact about the director. Yeah, so um, I just thought it was really interesting uh, that director Bob Clark uh, is you know, famous, obviously, for this Christmas movie, but also very famous for another iconic Christmas movie, A Christmas Story. 
<laughs> yeah, isn't that great? Uh, it's so good. Just like, t- <laughs> like the the Christmas movie that I have watched a gazillion times because you know it's been on TV a million times, and also, you know, it's just one that my family always enjoyed watching uh, around the holidays. Because it's the best Christmas movie of all time, I will say it. I can see that. It's it's really, <laughs> really solid. I like that movie a lot. Just yeah, to me that. This is from the same director. It just, I don't know. It just tickles my funny bone in, in just a, a nice way, because there's such such different Christmas movies. And also, just I had an uh, came across an interesting fact that apparently Black Christmas was going to be aired uh, on TV uh, in Florida, like it was you know scheduled with a network and all that kind of stuff. And then Ted Bundy uh, broke into a sorority house and murdered like two or three girls like oh, Ted a week Bundy. before it was supposed to air on the tv and so the like i think the governor of florida basically was like uh we're not showing this movie right after that happened thanks but way to go bundy thanks for ruining it for florida uh ted bundy That's... i feel like he's gonna come haunt me now tonight sorry ted bundy don't come haunt me yeah screw him <laughs> um all right he did. Let's talk about holiday horror, Nathaniel. I was quite excited to talk a little bit about this. Yeah, so so I I have in our notes that you know I wanted to kind of pose the question, is the idea of like times time stamped horror worthwhile? Is, you know, having a horror movie specifically associated like with a specific time of year or a specific holiday worthwhile? Because you know, inherently it it does kind of limit when people are willing to watch the movie, it, it definitely, you know, kind of narrows the impact of the movie in a lot of ways. You know, like, Black Christmas, I, I can't see me turning this on in, in the July. It, like, it's a December kind of movie. So, what what do you think, Max? Is is it worthwhile to have movies tied so closely to a specific date? You know, be it Christmas or Valentine's Day? You know me in the holidays. I am a big lover of all the holidays. Almost nauseating love when it comes to the holidays. Um, with that said, I-, I think this is kind of a double-edged sword. I think we've talked a lot about how it's so fun to watch Christmas get flipped on its head and be turned from this innocent, kind of loving festival of lights kind of a holiday into something dark and horror-esque. That's fun to me. Other holidays, you know, we've seen Thanksgiving horror movies, we've seen Fourth of July horror movies, even Valentine's, like my buddy, my bloody Valentine. While I think there's merit, I, I often feel like it's a moneymaker. They have this idea, we're going to have this movie around Easter, it's going to be big because people aren't going to do anything else around the holiday, they'll go see a movie, and then they kind of wash their hands of it. I, I think there's merit. I think Halloween is an exception. That's kind of in its own category. Horror and Halloween are like peanut butter and chocolate. And to some regard, I think Christmas and horror are another nice pairing. But I agree with you. I won't seek out a Christmas horror movie unless it's around November or December. And that's not a bad thing, but I think production companies and filmmakers need to keep that in mind, that I think some of the lasting power of their films is weakened if it is solely focused on a holiday. 
I definitely agree. You know, it's it's one of those, if the story and the themes come first, then, yeah, if it works better at a holiday time, cool. But if it if it's just there as a, as a marketing ploy of, like, hey, well, people will be bored and rentless and, you know, every Thanksgiving for from here to eternity, then I don't care. Like, don't waste my time. There are movies that it works well with, and there's, you know, but it has to be a good movie on its own, regardless of whatever holiday it's tied to. You know, great, well, and- great example on, on a totally different genre is Groundhog's Day. Groundhog Day has really very little to do with the holiday, but it's a great movie regardless. Well, and another movie that comes to mind that is, I think, a little bit more in line with what we're talking about is Gremlins. Gremlins is a movie that is, yes, a Christmas kind of oriented movie. The entire plot rotates around the Christmas holiday. However, I I feel like Christmas is a subplot. The real focus of the movie is about the Mogwais and don't feed them after midnight and all of these other contextual ideas that I could watch Gremlins in the middle of summer, not because I want to watch a Christmas movie, but because I love that movie. Christmas just becomes, you know, a side character. It's not the main character. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and again, like, that's, I think, true of Black Christmas here, where the, the holiday definitely does a lot to kind of contribute to some, like, really cool visuals. And it makes a lot of sense for like how Billy's able to do a lot of the killings that he does and get away with a lot of the stuff he does. But at the end of the day, like it's about a maniac killing people, not about you know Christmas. Well, and another movie that pops right up is Edward Scissorhands. Again, another movie set around the Christmas holiday that really isn't about Christmas. It's just a medium to get the plot moving. Yeah, because I mean, definitely holidays are parts of people's lives. It's part of course. Of- you know, the, the human experience for most people. So, yeah, like, it, it makes sense that a holiday would be incorporated. I just, yeah, I feel like so, sometimes we have so many bad movies that come out of the idea of holiday horror, things like Thanksgiving or the like, that it's just, it's not worth anybody's time. So New Year's Kiss, that one that you still haven't watched? Well, we, that that is a <laughs> episode that we have in the works, and it's going to get... It'll be a weird pairing, and it'll be... Y'all, y'all will see. You'll, you'll see. <laughs> All right. Uh, speaking of holiday horror movies, though, do you want to play another B, uh, B-Rail game? I mean, do I have a choice, Nathaniel? No, I'm definitely going to force you. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm teasing. I, I loved this game last. I thought about it way too much after the fact, so give me some more, <laughs> some more brain teasers. Okay, so this one's theme is appropriately The Night Santa Went Crazy. If, if you'll notice, I'm, I'm naming each theme after a, a song, and this one, of course, is the classic Weird Al song. So we have three Santa-related uh, Christmas-y horror movies. Uh, and if you missed the last episode and missed the rules, two of, uh, two of these are absolutely real, and one of them I made up completely. And we get to see if Max can figure out which one is not real. So, uh, yeah, the description. So, yeah, again, I have uh, a description of the movie, uh, the IMDb rating, uh, and a review for each one. Though this time I definitely cut down because I spent too much time reading them last time. All right. So first up, we have a movie from 2017, Mother Krampus. Based on the German urban legend of Frau Perchta, the Christmas witch, who takes a child each night over the 12 days of Christmas. 
for the 12 days before Christmas of 1921, children went missing near the local town's woods. A traumatized girl was found, but her mind had gone. She later died of horrific injuries. Just before Christmas of 1992, a further five children disappeared again. Their bodies were found in the same woods. Angry and seeking vengeance, the locals hung a woman that they believed to be the killer, but before dying, she cursed the town that one day the Christmas witch, Frau Perchta, would come for them to avenge her death. Twenty-five years later, the story has become little more than a local myth, but as children start to go missing again, everyone begins to wonder if the tales of the curse might be true. This Christmas, it's not only the children that are in danger, it's the adults, too. Overall rating, 4.0 out of 10. And uh, the review is a 2 out of 10, and the uh, title of the review is No, Hell No. Instead of this movie going from 0 to 60, it went from 60 to 0. It started out like it was going to be a good movie, but somewhere towards the middle, right down to the end, it became horrible. The storyline was good, the acting and directing started to suck, but it seemed like the actors lost their scripts, gave up, and started improvising. The acting was bad, and the movie turned ridiculous. Save yourself 1 hour, 28 minutes, and 45 seconds. Our second movie is a movie from 2005. It is called Ho Ho Horrifying. After a child's misspelled letter to Santa goes to Satan... No. The demons of hell begin no. an all-out assault on Christmas. No! Oh, no! Overall rating, overall rating is 3.3 out of 10. Uh, the review doesn't give it a rating. It just says, oh, hell no. Nothing is horrifying about this movie. It's just horrible. Basically, it just combines a bad joke with the, quote, war on Christmas. Steer clear, even though it's uh, free on Crackle. And then the last movie is from 1996. It is called Satan Claus. Oh, what is going on? (laughs) (laughs) On the night before Christmas, a serial killer dressed in a Santa Claus suit stalks the streets of New York looking for blood. One, one, Nathaniel, I feel like you personally chose these to attack me because of my love of Christmas. (laughs) Uh, duh. Uh, it seems that this madman is building the perfect Christmas tree and adorning it with parts of his victims. It's up to an actor, his police officer girlfriend, and a voodoo woman to stop him. Overall rating, 2.5 out of 10. And the review uh, is gives it a 5 out of 10. They must have been drunk during this one. A serial killer dressed as St. Nick chops people up, uh, people up with an axe on Christmas Eve. Wait, didn't Silent Night, Deadly Night do that like a dozen years earlier? And didn't Tales from the Crypt do it a dozen years before that? So, again, the movies, Mother Krampus, Ho Ho Horrifying, and Satan Claus. Which one's real? Or which one's not real? My first gut is to go with Mother Krampus, because it kind of sounds like a Conjuring spinoff. But also, writing a letter to Santa... And having it be switched to Satan sounds very Nathaniel to me. But the third one mentioned Crackle. I'm going to say the ho-ho-ho-horror one. The ho-ho-horrifying? Yeah, that's the fake one. Well, you're right. It is, in fact, the fake one. Yes! Oh, suck it, Nathaniel! Christmas is saved! But is it? Because, I mean, if... Mother Krampus and Satan Claus are both real movies. 
Oh boy. Oh boy. Uh, oh, I I feel attacked. <laughs> I feel like I need to go. I feel like I need to go pray. Father Lucifer, save my soul. Well, that was that was clever, Nathaniel. I got to give you props for that. Five hundred points to Ravenclaw. Okay. Well, and and the, you know the sad thing is when I was looking for bad Christmas horror movies, that's just scratching the surface, my friend. There are so many. There are so many. And all of them have like awful pun names. It's it's so good. I, I let's just say next year we could definitely do a, a whole another batch of these. So, but anyway, uh, how are you saying spooky these days? <laughs> I want to say very vulgar four letter words that rhymes with duck because I I feel much more tired than I was when we first started the B roll <laughs> movie. Oh, I hate B movies. You go first. Good lord. I okay. need a minute. I need a damn minute. <laughs> um, so I've been staying spooky by reading the Video Palace book, which is called Video Palace in Search of the Eyeless Man. So it is a collection of short stories that are kind of set in the Video Palace universe, I guess I would say. It's, it's presented as though it is basically a professor of folklore. Uh, who has collected a lot of stories about the eyeless man, which is you know, a villainous creature from uh, the Video Palace podcast, which, uh, if you are unfamiliar with it, you should definitely check it out, because it's amazing. And it's, uh, it's one that we have given awards to, and uh, you know, we've, we've interviewed Ben Rock, who uh, directed it. it it's, it's, it's fantastic. So it was great to get more Video Palace. I've been enjoying the book quite a bit. As a bunch of different writers uh, contribute to it, like basically all of the people that wrote for Video Palace before, plus also a bunch of other writers, it's it's definitely worth your time. Yeah, and to this day, Video Palace is still probably one of the greatest podcasts I've ever listened to. If you are a fan of horror, you're a fan of podcasts, and you haven't listened to Video Palace, fix your life. Also, if anyone who works for Shudder happens to be listening, give us a season two. Yes. Please. Anyway. I've been staying spooky. Um, for Christmas, my lord and savior Krampus um, gave me not only three lashings, but also a nice new wood kit that I'm quite excited to use. Um, I've kind of had this idea to to kind of create my own occult items and wood burning was a really simple way to to dive into it so got this cool wood burning kit watched some youtube videos read a little quick book about it and i actually created my set of own futhark nordic runes that i can use for casting runes and and i was really excited about it it was really cool very cathartic and you know very kind of not spooky, but mystical, magical. It was sweet. And I'm going to further take them and make a clock. So I'm going to have a clock of runes that I will hang in my kitchen. And then my big project for 2021 is I'm going to hand make my own Ouija board just because I want the full experience. And I feel like buying one from Target isn't Ouija worthy. So... If I summon what? Zozo and I become possessed, Nathaniel, it's because I made my own Ouija board. Yeah, I mean, that, that's how you get the really good uh, spirit interactions. It's when you get that instead of the Stranger Things branded one at Target. 
And I'm gonna, this Ouija board, I'm gonna, of course, you know, make the alphabet, the yes, the no, the goodbye, but I'm also gonna inscribe kind of my own sigil that I've created. I'm gonna add the Zuzu sigil because he's our boy. I'll probably throw in Paymans due to Hereditary and a few other favorite demons of mine. Kind of make it very max. And so, yeah, if you're fans of the podcast and if you're a fan of my Twitter, my the Instagram, definitely keep an eye on an eye out for it because it's in the works. Yeah, that sounds awesome. All right. Well, anything else we need to talk about? I don't think so. Um, other than just stay spooky, everyone. Yeah, happy holidays. Stay spooky. Need even more Scream Kings? Here's our obligatory shameless social media plug. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Scream Kings Pod. You could also email us at ScreamKingsPodcast at gmail.com. Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You can also support the show by going to Patreon.com forward slash Scream Kings. Stay spooky.